Welcome to the Business Leader Podcast. My name is Serena, and today our guest was a computing, mathematics, and language child prodigy, passing two GCSEs in primary school and an A-level in computing at the age of 11. She then went on to be one of the youngest master's graduates from the University of Oxford at the age of 20. Since, she has forged an aspirational career, having had roles at Goldman Sachs, Hewlett Packard, and Deutsche Bank. Now, she is the co-founder and CEO of STEMX, a social enterprise that promotes girls and non-binary people to get into STEM subjects. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episodes. We'd love to hear your feedback. Email questions at businessleader.co.uk to get in touch. And now it's time to welcome Anne-Marie Mafford, an MBE, to the podcast. Welcome, Anne-Marie. It's Thank lovely you. to have you here and um, really excited to speak to you about kind of all the exciting things that you're doing. So uh, I just want to kind of backtrack to when you were younger and obviously you had a very unique experience at school and kind of growing up. How would you describe growing up? Oh, uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, growing up, I'm the eldest of five um, in my house, and it was so it was like seven of us in one house, mm. which meant there was there was never any, ever anywhere you could go where you're on your own. But we had a lot of fun. Like we ate a lot. We had a lot of TVs. Like it was good times. It is good times, really. And uh, so that would be the word fun. Yeah, I had a very fun childhood. Um, but of course, I guess from the outside, you could also use the word fast paced, mm-hmm. but inside it, it didn't feel like that. It was kind of just, you know, we're going things, doing things at my pace as things work for me at the siblings pace, everyone else's. So yeah, a lot of fun. Fun, mm-hmm. I think would be the main word. Did you have any role models at that time? Because obviously you were, you know, very high achieving from quite a young age. You know, were there role models that encouraged you and enabled you at that time that sort of made you have that motivation? Um, so for me, it was less about the role models. I think, you know, if, if I can point to anyone, I remember like learning about Tim Berners-Lee because uh, I was on the web a lot and thinking, you know, he's a British physicist. I'm British too. Kind of physics, he knows what that is, but like I like that kind of sciencey, mathsy stuff. So I remember thinking, you know, that's cool that he made something that was so impactful and so worldwide. That's definitely something I could do one day. Like, why not? Mm -hmm. So I think if there's role models, that would be the person. But I think I've had more of the right kind of people who opened up opportunities rather than it being I want to be like someone or I have this now a lot in my work and in the book and everything. And kind of uh, if you can see it, you can be it. But I think for me, I could see the tech. I could see the logic. I could see the world around me and was trying to understand it. And that was my motivation. And like the more I learned, the more I understood, the more I could make. And so it was less about the role models. It was more about the tech and the maths and, you know, that logic and the creativity itself. Mm -hmm. So would you say that you kind of went into STEM from that young age because of just like your sheer kind of love and enjoyment for it? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, for me, like I said, it's that it was the creativity. So like whether it was playing with databases because you can like put a lot of stuff in and you can organize it and get things out. I, mean, I was like fascinated with them age 10 or before that it was, you know, typing stories on my dad's computer and, you know, age four, it was probably gobbledygook is what four year old can spell. But like, you know, it was red riding hood, but her hood was purple instead because I thought that was a better color and, and I'd save it in the computer. And, you know, to this day, it's still quite a funny one that if you dug out wherever that computer is and plugged it in and, Weighted ages, you know, word 3.0, there'd be four-year-old Amory, you know, mm. staring back out at you. 
So I think for me, the motivation and in going into STEM, even though I didn't know it was STEM, was about the exploration. It was about the learning. It was about the understanding. It was about, you know, being able to logically apply things that you'd seen and you'd learn about databases or about the web or about whatever part of maths it was that, you know, we'd looked at that week at school or elsewhere. And then being like, okay, here's what I can do because of that. And so for me, that was my creativity. And that's still what draws me to STEM, but that was kind of how I ended up in that space. Mm -hmm. And it was something that made sense, Mm -hmm. which I think is the other thing, you know, even when we reflect on my experience at school, you know, a lot of the stuff that you do in primary school is repetitive because that's what the learning is about, right? You do the timetables over over and over and over again, or you work through geometry over and over and over again. Um, And I remember you know, being there and being like, okay, cool. Like you said this last year and it made sense when you said it last year, it still makes sense now. So I don't really need to hear that again. I'm just going to muck about with my mates instead and like distract the class. Uh, Cause we've already done this and I, I could explain it back to you as you wish. Um, mm. So that was it for me. It was, it was a way to understand the world. It was a way to get creative. And that's still something that sticks with me today. You mentioned that, that you grew up in kind of a, a busy household was that with your family and do you have sort of a lot of siblings or who, who was in that household so I'm one of one of five so it was me my mum my dad and then the other four who all came after me <laughs> there were twins at one point so there were a lot of people in nappies um so yes yeah, so it was very busy and they were really active in church as well so there were always people around there were always parties there was always something happening um in the house yeah and do you think that environment kind of impacted the way that you I guess like you thought about life, but also what would you say was the kind of driving factor in you, I guess, applying yourself at school or sort of having that mentality that you wanted to achieve? Did you have that mentality? Not really, no, no, mm. it wasn't, it wasn't, it, there's not really, I mean, it's funny, it's nice because people ask, you know, I did countdown recently as well, people are like, was that part of the plan? And I'm like, no, mm. <laughs> it's not really a plan. Um, yeah. I try things out and I see where it goes and I follow it to some sort of logical conclusion. And even then, not even really to a conclusion. I just kind of follow it and see how far it goes. So it was never like, oh, I want to be the youngest or I really want to do this or I want to do great at school. It was more, this is cool. Like there's clearly more that I could do in this. Let Mm. me just do more. And so that was it more than any like external forces or any expectations, like even up to doing the GCSEs. So, you know, there was part of me that was like, yeah, my cousin's four years older than me. Um, and you know, like you always want to, you know, watch TV shows that your cousins are watching or whatever. And I remember them, you know, this GSCE, GESC thing. And I remember being like, okay, cool. Yeah. Like that's, that could be the next step. That's the next stage. And I remember doing it because I wanted to be like my cousins and, and not really assuming or kind of taking for granted that I was going to pass it. So I was as surprised as any, everyone else was mm-hmm. when the results came back. They was like, yeah, you passed it. Cause it was like me, you're like a 10 year old writing this exam. Um, and so, yeah, I've never, I'm not really, I clearly like to do things and get things done, but I'm not like, I must achieve or I must be the first or I must, must, must. Like, that's not really, it's not really the way I live my life, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not really what my, my motivations obviously evolve as you get older. Mm-hmm. But I think, yeah, for me, I'm just, I'm just here for a good time. <laughs> oh, amazing. Because I, because I definitely think that, you know, when you hear about, someone so young achieving such high results and things that other you know kids their age aren't achieving you do perhaps assume that there is potentially a pressure coming from around them or um you know that motivation 
might come from them wanting to sort of achieve things because of their parents might pressure into it or they they feel in, inside themselves that they have to achieve something but it, I think it's like yeah it's interesting and refreshing that you you just kind of followed what you were good at yeah and stuck with it and then that's kind of what's led to you doing this stuff yeah. yeah I think for me I was following along and doing it at my pace and enjoying what I was doing like no one can get me to do anything I don't want to do that's still a thing that's like like now like my parents still annoys my parents actually now but yeah there's a lot of things that they wish I was doing that I'm like no no mm-hmm. um so I think I think yeah for me it's always I, I enjoy I genuinely enjoy the mass I genuinely enjoy the tech I enjoy the the ICT I enjoy learning I enjoy trying new things I enjoy applying what I've learned so all of that has been what's driven it and you know once you've passed your CSEs what's next A-levels, right? And so I think that was it. I mean, in many ways, there are lots of subjects that I dislike because I really didn't like English, for example. And so the more I was doing the maths, the less time I was spending on English. Uh (laughs) So like win-win. But yeah, no, no, no pressure or anything like that externally. I think it's definitely something that has meant that maybe the stereotypes that folks might think of kind of hot housing, child genius, child pressure, Mm. even child actors is not, Mm. uh, just aren't things that have played out for me in life because it's just, this is like me. It's just what I'm like. With the work that you do with STEMET, that's kind of a passion project. It's a social enterprise. So where did the motivation to, to start that come from in the first place? So I think what motivates me now and what motivated me to start STEMETs are kind of slightly different but connected. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I have always been into this mass, like, you, like we kind of said. I've always been, have often been the only girl in the room and... For me, you know, going off into industry, working, I really, really enjoyed it because I was being paid now to do all the stuff I would have done anyway, age 10. Um, but it was a conference that I ended up at actually at the end of 2012. Um, so almost 10, 10 years ago, uh, almost, almost actually. Um, and I uh, turned up at this conference in the States. So I was asked to speak on something in particular and kind of, it was like free trip to America. Whoop. So let's go. Turns off at the conference, it was three and a half thousand technical women at this one conference. Mm-hmm. And I remember turning up there and being like, oh my goodness, I've never seen anything like this in my mm-hmm. life. It's not even something I was missing or knew I was missing, mm-hmm. but how, how crazy, right? That this is like a, this is the first time I'm in a majority female environment. We're all technical, like whether it was data scientists, whether it was developers, whether it was, you know, the people working in, in cyber or the rest of it. Um, And uh, there was a keynote at the conference and this lady was talking about how in the US, the number of women engaging in tech had been in free fall over the last, you know, decades or so. And so her call to the audience was, you all as women, please stay. Here's reasons to stay and recruit just one friend. Like that was that was what she said. And so I remember thinking, huh, this is really interesting. Maybe it's an American problem. Getting back to the UK and looking back and being like, no, there were three of us in my on my course of 70 in these computer science mm-hmm. lectures. Mm-hmm. I'm often the only woman in a lot of the meetings I'm in at work, you know, and so being like, okay, cool, this is not a US problem. We've got it here in the UK. Someone should do something about it because I'm having a ball. Mm-hmm. I'm earning mm-hmm. really well. I'm, you know, I'm able to influence, I'm listened to, I'm promoted. Like it can't just be me here in this space. That's not right. And so I ended up doing a little bit more reading, a little bit more research into it. And seeing that, yeah, like it's a problem that has implications for us economically, has implications for us, you know, ethically, societally, politically. And so decided to do something about it for, you know, personally, my unborn children, mm-hmm. you know, still haven't haven't had children. But, you know, if I ever have anyone, I don't want them to be like, oh, my goodness, my mom's the one weirdo woman left in tech. <laughs> but if I have any daughters, I want them to feel like it's an option for them. 
Um, but now it's evolved a little bit more to, you know, when you when you dive a little bit deeper into these things. And, you know, like I said, there's a lot of implications when technology is so ubiquitous, when it's, you know, driving so many decisions that are made across society, that are made on products that people use every day, that are, you know, that are restricting their rating, you know, that all these kinds of things that actually us not having women in the room, us not having different types of voices in the room means that we're doing more harm than we need to. And actually, if we don't work hard to change these things around, we might end up with this dystopian, you mm -hmm. know, Terminator 2, Black Mirror, whatever kind of eventuality without realizing and without that necessarily being the intentions of what we had as an industry. And I love technology. I love being a technologist. I want to be proud of the legacy that we've left rather than, you know, having to hang your head in shame of, you mm -hmm. know, the weird things that we're seeing with robots or the weird things we're seeing with AI or, you know, some of the implications that we're seeing of even, you know, if we want blockchain or, you know, the fact that we've now created a metaverse and there's already assaults happening in a metaverse. It's like it was bad enough that mm -hmm. was happening outside of the metaverse. Now we've created a whole nother world of extra problems and we're creating problems faster than we're solving them. And so I think for me, that's still my motivation. Like I still don't think it's too late for yeah. us to reverse these things. Yeah. And that's why it's kind of the subhead of the book, you know, for women to take back tech and for us to all be a part of these decisions as they're yeah. being made because the implications are so far reaching. Um, and so that's my motivation now on a daily basis, whether it's Demet's, whether it's me, you know, popping up on Countdown, whether it's any of the boards that I'm involved with. So I'm a trustee at the Institute for the Future of Work. I'm on the G7's Global Partnership for AI. I'm on the Council of Research England, like all these places to just be able to nudge and be like, okay, systemically, let's try to not end up in this dystopian ending. Because if we don't change things up, that probably is where we're going to end up. Why have women and girls typically been kind of excluded from STEM subjects and from these industries? So I cover this in the book um, a fair amount, but I think it's uh, when we started STEMETS, we were talking a lot about the social norm that we have around technical women and their existence and the fact that actually if you ask someone to name a scientist or name a technologist, you know, no offence at all to any dead white men that listen to the podcast, but it is a dead white man, probably with a beard, mm -hmm. that ends up being mentioned and ends up being drawn out. And that's not to say that dead white men haven't contributed quite a lot to what we have in science, technology, engineering and maths, but there's a lot of people that have contributed to that. There's a lot of, there's a very rich STEM history mm -hmm. that we have as well, whether it's GPS, whether it's Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, whether it's bulletproof vests, like there's a lot of things, whether it's the flight uh, receiver in Concorde, like there's a lot of things that women have done that they've contributed to, many of which we still use every day and on a daily yeah. basis. Mm -hmm. But there's been a very over erasure yeah. of those mm -hmm. stories, erasure of that, that kind of narrative of those different archetypes. And it's something we then don't see in our headlines. We don't see in our storytelling. We don't see in our own collective histories that we have of society. You know, even here in the UK, you know, there were women in the 1960s who were housewives who were coding from their kitchen tables you know, yeah. and when we think 60s, we think, you know, twiggy, yeah. miniskirts, that's it. And it's like, no, these women were genuinely, you know, we still have stock control systems and yeah. bus timetables that were built by these women. But no one can consider, can comprehend. No one's got that as part yeah. of their psyche. And the reason why, well, there are lots of different things that we can point to. You know, sometimes it's just, you know, a marketing decision made by, you know, gaming, the gaming industry a couple of decades yeah. back. Other times it's part of a really um, intentional post-war effort 
to build back, build back Britain, you know, on this ICT as it as it was referred to then in kind of government documentation. Mm-hmm. And so and actively saying, actually, no, there is a housewife and the men that are coming back need to have something to do. And so we're going to get those wives to train the people that then end up taking over from them, which is what happened a lot actually mm-hmm. um, in the 60s, which is why we ended up having them coding from home. So there's quite a lot of um, intentional things that have happened, but I, I think it's one of those things that, you know, you end up inheriting this as a culture. Yeah. You end up inheriting that thing if women just don't do that, even though they really do and they'd be really good at it. And we're all losing out by not having them as part of those technical decisions that we're making. Um, so, you know, whatever has happened already, it's like, it's time to time to change, time to evolve, time to look forward and say, actually, no matter what we did say, we do need those women now in these spaces. We need lots of different types of people in these spaces. And what are we gonna do from the top, right? As a business leader, what am I gonna do to ensure that my culture is set up for them to be accepted, for them to be celebrated, for them to thrive, and then for my business to thrive as a result of having that diverse workforce. This specific issue um, of, you know, representation, especially in the tech sector, a lot of it, you know, isn't just to do with the fact that women haven't necessarily been given the opportunity of it, but even when women have been given the opportunity, the way that we've reported on it historically has been kind of inaccurate. And then that has led to this sort of, as you say, like erasure. And therefore this has this kind of like pervasive trickle down effect of, of like now when the way that we perceive STEM subjects and technology and, you know, what is the norm of that is, is warped, I suppose, to some extent. Yeah. So I think, I think erasure plays a big part, but I think the, the knock on effect of that very intentional erasure. So those women were there, but we just haven't told those stories. We've chosen not to tell those stories. Um, and so there's been a knock on effect because then that means that if, you know, if you're turning up today in the IT industry, or if you're turning up today, you know, as a business leader, you know, whatever you're doing with your technology, your assumptions, right, your baselines that you're checking against mean that actually if a woman does turn up, you're less likely to think that she's going to be competent. You're less likely to want to listen. You're less likely to want to value. And there are lots of examples mm. that we have of kind of some of the extremes maybe of this where, you know, I get sent stories all the time, you know, for the position that I'm in, where people are telling me all kinds of things. I get to talk to a lot of different companies and I get to see a lot of the dynamics and it is people being undermined. It is people being overlooked. It is people not being recruited. It's people not being paid well and paid properly. You know, it's people not being put in positions of responsibility that should be. And it's happening wholesale because those who do have that power, those who are leaders, aren't leading as if they should be in that space. Mm-hmm. So whether it's the example, you know, from the 1700s of Marie-Sophie Germain, the mathematician who initially had to write under a male alias because I didn't think women couldn't do maths at that point, who ended up, you know, being instrumental with elasticity, with string theory, which was how the Eiffel Tower is still standing today. And they've got 72 names of scientists and engineers around the Eiffel Tower. And her name is not one of them because at that point they knew she was a woman and thought it'd be untoward to have her there. Right through to the fact that, you know, every couple of years, the technology industry rediscovers the period for the very first time. And it's like, hey, guys, there's this thing called the period. And some people have a period sometimes. Did you know? And they, you know, they end up building these features. They go for design. They go for implementation. They go for rollout. They'll market it in a really big way. Um, and they'll kind of add it into the fitness tracker. And, you know, it'll be like, we're going to track the period. So did you know some people have periods? Did you know we've discovered this? And did you know we've now added it as a new feature in? Um, and we had this a couple of years ago where it only tracked 10 days of the period. And it's a really interesting one to kind of consider that you've gone through that whole process 
And this is a period tech company or period tech feature, period tech teams that have gone through and have done this. And, you know, they've discovered the period for the very first time. They've rolled it out and it only tracks 10 days. And, you know, I have to ask the listener, like, maybe you do know why that's a problem. Maybe you don't. I mean, it'd be interesting to know how many people you can kind of check with. Why is 10 days of a period tracking not great? But can you imagine in that whole process, not a single person had ever had a period or met anyone that had a period. And that was how it went through all those teams and was released out onto the market. Hmm. Or they did have people that had met, met folks that had periods or maybe even some people that had a period before that just weren't listened to and weren't valued in that conversation. And if we're not doing that in a very period-specific space, where else are we not valuing? Where else are we not hearing these ideas? Where else are we restricting our own innovation? Because we have a really narrowly defined vision of what uh, is of value Mm -hmm. and of what success could look like and who can contribute to that success. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's where it kind of ends up fitting through, that if you've never valued what a woman said if you've never seen a woman who knows what she's talking about technically why would that be something you then would kind of have your whole business culture built on you know another example I can give from my own experiences but as I said to you I've been obsessed with databases since I was 10 um you know I remember working on a particular one at one of my jobs and um ending up at an off-site where we were trying to you know deal with a really big issue with this system that we were using that was run by this database I knew the database inside out because that's kind of my thing. And so it was like, you know, we could use this flag, we could use this, we could use that and then write it and we'd be fine. Um, and the person that was leading the session was a bit like, yeah, yeah, why, why would she know what she's talking about? Kind of dismissed it out of hand. And then about half an hour later, there was like a contractor in the room who'd been reading through the documentation was like, actually, no, this flag is here. Actually, what Amri said we could use, we should just use that. And we don't need to build this convoluted system that you spent 20 minutes trying to build. And it's things like that where it's like, you know, I'd said the right thing in the right space, in the right meeting, but because I had said it, and it's hard to unpick, is it because I was young? Is it because I was female? Is it because I was black? Is it because I've got a great East London accent? Like what of those, is it a combination of all the above, has meant that I've not been heard, not been valued, and we've literally wasted half an hour in this offsite now with this person literally feeling like they're on a hidden camera show because <laughs> the little black girl in the corner knew what she was talking about more than he did. Mm-hmm. And it's all of these small things that end up adding up to people leaving the industry, right? People not wanting to contribute in the way that they know that they can, but also us not having the right kind of innovation that, again, solves more problems than it's creating. So, yeah, really, really important, actually. That's a really big kind of kind of thing to remember, I think. Like when, when we are thinking about like trying to get women into STEM subjects and STEM areas is that that also ultimately you know as a business person as well your ultimate kind of desire is to fulfill a need in society yeah and there are so many needs that you know half of the population have that aren't necessarily being filled there are so many new technologies and inventions that could kind of come out of of those needs being filled which Mm. ultimately aren't being filled, I suppose. Exactly. So, so there's a potential for innovation there, which, you know, it, even if you don't fully see the, the benefits in having a more diverse boardroom, I mean, and surely you'd hope everyone would see the benefits <laughs> of that, but, um, but from a kind of profit-driven sense, like yeah. that there are many needs that need to be filled. Um, there are. You know, and potential for innovation. Yeah. Um, coming to your work with STEMETs, can you describe a little bit about 
how uh, the opportunity came about to kind of like build Samets and then create all of the different, the, the network that you've created essentially. Yeah. So um, I, if we remember the, the kind of conference from earlier, so I got back home from this conference and um, saw that we had the same problem across the UK and decided to kind of boil down the experience I'd had at the conference to something a little bit smaller, a little bit more British, because there's an American way of doing things, there's a British way of doing things, um, and also dial down the age group. So the conference itself was for students and for people in industry. And I was like, you know, if, if young people, if during your formative years, you got to have this kind of experience, STEM experience, all female, majority female STEM experience, to have this connection, to feel, you know, like one of many I wonder how many folks, you know, that would impact the decisions that they make, that would impact their view of the world and also their view of themselves. So STEMETS then came out of me blogging about this for a while. So the months after I came back from the conference, I blogged about it, spoke to a lot of people that I knew across industry, spoke to a couple of folks who were already trying to do something about it and then decided, hey, you know, let's take this board down version. It was a panel, a hack and, and a show, an exhibition. And let's see, let's, you know, run a pilot year almost. So it was the Stemets project in 2013 initially that I kind of did on the side of my job, was really enjoying my job. You know, that was great. And was like, yeah, why not? Like, you know, on the weekends, on the side, why don't I try this thing? You know, other people take up yoga. I took up the Stemets project um, and got to the end of the first year. In fact, 11 months in, we were then at number 10 at a round table with, I think at that point it was Michael Gove and David Willett. We were the disruptors, called the disruptors in the corner talking about this um, and you know this is what I'm saying like this is a this is a problem of national and international importance the fact that within 11 years the Stemets project was there you know in the cabinet office discussing these things talking about you know the the glut of teachers that we have how we've got shortcomings and skills um, gaps across it all um, and so I kind of got to the end of the first year and was like oh that's interesting like that's this is like a thing but I like sleeping I have a job you know like a you know, most people take up yoga. This has become a, I actually called it a monster for the first, you know, year or so. Cause I was like, this thing has taken on a life of its own. Like I wouldn't have imagined I'd be here. Um, and so I actually said I was going to close down the Stemets project. I was like, it's been a year, you know, I've done, done a couple of bits and you know, it is what it is. I've been really open about it. So if folks want to use what we've said and what we've done, they can do. And had a couple of people come back and like, be like, no, 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 no. My kid like is relying on you now. <laughs> right. No, 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 no. And so ended up saying, okay, cool, right, let's get some funding in and let's do this, let's get it going. So 10 years later, we'll be 10 into across 2023. It's a team of about 20 and it's on-demand services and support. It's short-term um, to kind of up to a week, maybe like interventions and events and opportunities. And then it's long-term cohorts and networks of young people, whether it's in their school clubs, whether it's in mentoring, whether it's gaining certifications in Python, Agile, and um, Cyber. And, you know, our, the strap line is that we're engaging, informing, and connecting the next generation of women and, and non-binary people to STEM and to STEAM, which is the science, technology, engineering, mm -hmm. arts, and maths fields, showing the diversity of role models across, you know, industry, academia, and entrepreneurship. But the whole aim is really, you know, before you're 25, there's a lot of decisions that you end up making that have impacts on the rest of your life and the decisions that you make before you're 25, you're forming your view of yourself, of STEM, of those options. And before 25, you're coming kind of to it clean, right? Without a, as much baggage maybe as you might have as an adult who now looks back fondly or not, right? On the maths lessons or science lessons. And so during our formative years, what's, what are really powerful interventions that we can do to ensure that these young people do end up making an informed decision about STEM? So rather than saying, I'm a girl, I won't do it. It's like, well, okay, 
this is not the problem I want to solve. And so therefore STEM is not something I'm going to pursue. Or this is a problem I'm going to solve. I'm going to study the politics. Or I'm going to study arts. And I'm also going to take along these STEM skills because they enrich what I'm able to do and what I'm able to achieve. Um, so we're solving that problem. As you mentioned, network there. You know, often girls still, unfortunately, are the only in their physics class. You know, I remember when we were at that number 10 roundtable, the stat at that point was that half of the schools in the country didn't have a single girl doing A-level physics. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, that means you literally feel like you're the only in your school, but you're not the only in the country. And so how do we connect these people together? How do we allow them to share math strokes? How do we get them to share tough conversations they're having with peers and teachers in the classroom? How do we get them to share with their parents while being a games designer is going to lead to something, you know, probably prosperous and probably fulfilling, Mm -hmm. you know, rather than just looking like they're just drawing pictures for the sake of drawing pictures. Um, And so it's ended up being a network of those young people. We have our Stomet Society, which is the online community. We have our newsletters. We have events that they can come along to. We have the youth board. You know, there's all kinds of opportunities that they have to build STEM and STEAM skills, to build those core skills, and really importantly, to build a network that can enhance their staying power. Um, Because as we've said, you know, there's a lot of things that women end up facing in the industry. And if you've got a network, if you've got your mentors, if you've got people around you, you're much more likely to kind of have the resilience to stay and make the change that we need to see despite the environment that you're in. And so that's been the the power and the fun Mm -hmm. um, and the impact of STEMET. So it's been more than 60,000, I think, at this point over the last 10 years of young people across the UK and Ireland who have had STEM experiences, whether that's in a club, whether that's in a school trip, whether that's at an event, whether that's coming to see the Mercedes um, F1 team up close and get to see the cars, you know, whether it's working with GCHQ and MI5 and MI6. Like, there's all these opportunities and people that they've got to meet that they wouldn't have seen and that Hollywood, TV, sometimes parents, often peers would say don't exist, but they've got to see all of them. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's that's been the power of Stamets. That's what that's all been about, and continues to be about mm-hmm. as we head, head as we yeah head into our tenth year. <laughs> and you, you mentioned in that kind of initial uh, growth period, uh, you sort of reached out for funding and, and raised funds for Stamets. What was that experience like, and, and how did you go about navigating that? Because typically, I think you know that's a challenge that a lot of female business owners do really face is is raising funds and kind of getting that recognition. So what was your experience with that? So as a social enterprise, we ended up going down a slightly different route from needing to raise funds and kind of generate investment. So I, was, I wasn't actually full-time on Stamets until maybe two, three years into the journey. So I was still working. We were being paid to provide the services that we were doing. So it was effectively bootstrapping, but with, I guess you could say, like really good market fit, where we had funders, we had people that were willing to pay for what we were delivering. We had people that were willing to pay um, for kind of marketing alongside whatever we were doing. We had people that were willing to fund and sponsor and also donate. So it has been 10 years of that kind of thing, whether it's statutory funding, whether it's from private foundations, whether it's from corporates and companies who just know that they've got a problem on their hands and they want to invest in the future. Mm-hmm. That's how it's been rather than needing to raise, you know, do seed round and do series A or anything like that. So that's taken the pressure off a little bit. I know definitely not working full time at Stamets at the beginning meant that, you know, we could work a little bit more and be more flexible on that front. Um, but even now, you know, there's We've got to prove a model. We've got a lot of alumni. We've got a lot of engagement. We've got a lot of, you know, other benefits for people that work at these companies that that engage with us. And so actually that has been more than enough and we haven't needed to go out and have that fight with a VC, you know, or try and pitch. And 
<laughs> it's not to say we haven't had those discussions. I mean, I remember turning up at one investment conference that I was invited to speak at um, and then having folks kind of, you get booked in, right, to kind of speak to people afterwards. And uh, we, we run a, an, an incubator called Outbox um, where we give young people funding for their business ideas. And I remember being sat down with this guy who was like, okay, cool, right? So it's young girls and businesses. So it's all like, what, Tommy Beauty makeup, that kind of thing. And me being like, no, but also... <laughs> why am I in this meeting with you? I don't want to, I don't sit with you and have to explain to you that girls like things other than beauty and makeup. Um, and so, yeah, like it's been really, I get to see it, but from the side, I get to see our young people also growing their businesses, but it's not, it's not something we've had to engage with or fight against. Um, but it's definitely something I've broached on my podcast, Women Tech Charge, got to speak to lots of folks about that. And I, I know it, I know it's a problem. It's just not been, it's not been the path. I think it is important actually to talk about that because not everything is about you know, raising investment, you can build businesses in other ways. And actually, I've, I've really enjoyed doing it the way that we've done it. Mm-hmm. And would you say that your motivations kind of as the business has grown have changed both in a professional perspective, but even in your own personal life? Kind of how do you maintain that motivation um, kind of despite all odds? Um, so the motivation, like the overall aim hasn't changed. It still is that trying to avoid Black Mirror Terminator 2 eventuality. I think day to day, yeah, it's tough. Like managing a team of 21 people is also like fun, right? During the you know, post-pandemic or post-lockdown and, you know, hybrid, all these new ways of working and human beings are human beings. They're not algorithms or computers. So I think for me, the motivation is the time I get to spend with the young people. Um, and so I do that as much as I can. So yesterday, actually, I think I was on a session we had with an engineer and I was hosting it and you get to hear from them directly and you get to see connections being made. You get to see advice. You get to see names and, you know, young people coming back and people being like, yeah, I was at the very first one. And, you know, or results day, you know, happens and then you get a load of messages of, you know, you remember when we were, you know, I didn't get the grades I wanted. And now I've got a first class and I'm, you know, off to be a software developer here. And, you know, I want to come back and help. And I think that then is the motivation of seeing the impact that we are having in this formative years, seeing how these young women and young people are going into industry with a completely different definition of success, but highly skilled highly competent, highly confident. I mean, I, I'm worried for the industry, really, because we're sending, we're unleashing, unleashing these stomachs on them. And, you know, like, I'll get messages and it'll be like, Henry. And I'm like, hey, they're like, yeah, so, yeah, that job, that company I told you about, yeah, like, I quit it. and But actually, I've started this thing up and, you know, we've got the funding for this and I just want your advice on this. And I'm like, hang on a second, rewind. You quit? What happened? And they're like, oh, well... You know, they weren't listening and, you know, they didn't believe me that I knew this. And, you know, I know I know what I know, you know, and it's things like that where it's like, OK, cool. And now she's built, you know, an alternate VR startup outside that's doing really well. And you've got to think, you know, you know so my, my, my kind of message to business leaders is don't go the way of Kodak. Like they're, they're coming. These guys, these folks, this next generation, they've seen problems and they know that it's not just about profit and status. They know mm-hmm. that there's a wider impact. There's wider you know, leverage that you can have in work and in what we do and in what we create. And if you're not meeting the standards, they're going to build something outside and, you know, make sure you're not going the way of Kodak, right? Make sure you are listening. Make sure you are evolving. Make sure you are iterating. Make sure that you are valuing the right people in your organization, not just the brilliant jerks who remember the days of Fortran. And so therefore, you know, everyone now is at the mercy of them just because they know one thing very well. You know, creating, cultivating the right kind of cultures for 
lots of different people to be able to thrive. Because mm-hmm. um, otherwise, yeah, I mean, I, I'm on the Stamets side. <laughs> yeah. And and as you ma- mentioned that, you know, technology is evolving so much. And I think you, you also mentioned kind of the threats of various technological developments like the metaverse and AI, but also in the working world, people are really kind of conscious of the impact that these technological developments can have yeah. on taking people's jobs or even just society and, and the environment as well. You mm. know, there are a lot of different, you know, threats for the future. Do you have an opinion on what kind of the biggest or sort of scariest threat might be in the technological world in the future? Um, or are you not particularly worried? No, so I don't think it's one threat. I wouldn't say, you know, AI is the biggest threat or robotics is the biggest threat or the metaverse or Bitcoin or whatever or blockchain. I think... For me, the threat is not having the right people and not having the right considerations as we roll out this technology. I'm a trustee at the Institute for the Future of Work, and there's some case studies we released a couple of years ago looking at, you know, everything we do is fourth industrial revolution. So all these these technologies, a lot of them are data-driven and the impact that they're having on the workplace. Um, And we looked at the impact that, you know, using algorithms to hire, using algorithms to to recruit, to kind of promote, using algorithms to manage a workforce and allocate shifts and decide promotions and pay. And the implications it has of just allowing the technology to do what the technology has been created to do without any checks, balances, considerations, impact assessments, or any real accountability for that technology being rolled out. So I think for me, the biggest challenge is going to be it's actually for the industry and it's like, you know, we, we can't be as arrogant as we have been up until this point. Like knowing the computer science doesn't mean you know the scenarios and the use cases that it's being applied in. And so we can't arrogantly be like, this AI is going to tell you if the person is trustworthy. Because it's like, how, is, how do human beings know that that person is trustworthy? Have you taught the AI what trustworthy looks like? Is it based on phrenology, which is something that supposedly we threw out ages ago? Right. What, what is it based on if you've got the right kind of data? Also, you know, if, if a human being is not able to tell who's trustworthy, if you've got an AI now doing that billions of times a second, what are we multiplying up? Like, is that really something we want to be doing? And what are the implications and who's thinking about how we do that billions of times a second and what the implications of that look like versus, you know, even though it's analog and it's slow and it's human versus a human doing that and making that one mistake at a time. So I think that's that's my kind of that's my biggest fear. That's the biggest challenge that I have to the industry is there's way too much arrogance. Like just because you know the computer science doesn't mean you know all of it. And so where are we thinking about our own accountability, our own checks and balances, and the fact that this isn't, isn't just deterministic in like a closed space and in a vacuum. This is affecting real lives. This is impacting what people are paid. This is impacting you know the way the resources are being shared. This is impacting you know when people are getting things that they really need for real life in health circumstances, in work circumstances, financially, right? These are really serious decisions that are being made. And so we can be a little bit um, blasé. We can be a little bit, you know, um, we don't take it as seriously as we really should because we're so excited about that technology that we're forgetting that actually there's real human beings on the end of this. And so for me, that's the challenge is, yeah, like it's great to have that pace of, of um, innovation. And I put it in air quotes, that pace of innovation, but at what cost? And how are we counting that cost? From what perspective are we, you know, saying, okay, okay, that's the person that's going to bear that cost rather than just selling because we want to sell and make all the money and do all the things. Like, what's the point if, 
you know, the planet ends up on fire anyway. So I think that's that's the biggest challenge is whether it's metaverse, whether it's entities, whatever the new thing will be. I'm sure by December it'll be another thing by the time folks are listening to this. But what's the cost? What's the implications? What's the impact assessment we've had on that? And who is accountable for all of these things as they happen? Because I mean, I talk about this in the book a lot. Like there's, there's already a lot of fallout that we're seeing you know, there's a reason why the robots haven't taken our jobs yet, right? There's a lot of issues we're having in computer vision, in learning, in perception of different things for the algorithms. And if we're not there yet, should we really be trusting them to do so many of the, of the use cases that we're now, is now sprawling across life as we know it? So I think that's the biggest challenge is being wise and being smart about the rollout of these technologies and the selling of them rather than just doing it because of the excitement of being a computer scientist that can solve all the problems right off the bat, based just purely on computer science knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think with technology, it can often feel as this thing that exists outside of humanity that we've had kind of no control over. But mm -hmm. in reality, you know, ultimately, we have created these things exactly. and, and how we create this, these things will have that impact on future generations exactly. on, the, on the planet exactly. and that kind of thing. And what's a, what's a legacy? What are the decisions we can make today that ensure that we can have a legacy that we're proud of tomorrow? So, I mean, I mean, a lot of folks will remember Knight Rider watching this. And, you know, remember in the 80s, it was such a futuristic thing to be able to talk to your car. So I think it was Michael with the car kit. And Michael would talk to the car. Not only would the car hear what you're saying, but they'd be able to successfully fight crime together. And it's a funny one to think that then that was so futuristic. Whereas now, you know, we talk to inanimate objects all the time, right? We're constantly talking to Siri or getting Alexa to order a new Lou roll. And it's, how funny is it that those kind of, excitements and that creativity and the priorities almost of that generation that watched that has meant that we've got these things now and so actually yeah the, the decisions that you make now are gonna have that impact fairly quickly and so how can you make a decision that you're going to be proud of how are we going to have a legacy that we're proud of as technologists where at the moment I, i'm not sure how many of us can say we're proud of what's going on and you know whether it's the whether it's the bullying whether it's you know the the, the lack of redistribution of resources whether it's concentration of power whether it's overturning a government that you know an instability that's being created like all of that's come from decisions that we've made where we haven't thought about the wider implications of what we've released so yeah that's my that's my biggest worry for now that's why i do that's why i leave the house every day if not i just stay at home <laughs> yeah definitely and i can imagine that's a really big kind of driving factor behind your motivation um but i i do just want to speak a little bit about kind of your own leadership style do you ever have moments where you have self-doubt or you know negative self-talk and how do you deal with so not quite negative self self-thought no or even imposter syndrome i think for me it's an interesting one where, you know, a lot of the spaces that I'm in, other than maybe Stemets, which I created, lots of spaces I'm in, I've been invited into. And so actually for me, it's like, I, there's always a reason that I've been invited in. Maybe I do know, maybe I don't know. And so I always know that there's some sense of value that I can bring. I know what I do know. I know the experiences I have had. I know the network that I have. And I know the, the closeness that I have to our Stemet community. And so I always know that there's something that I can bring of value in a lot of the arenas that I'm in. But I think for me, it's not negative self-talk. I think it's more just... You know, say this, one of my bosses said this to me, you know, early on in my career, Amory, people are messy. And I think as someone who's a mathematician and computer scientist, like everything's deterministic and incredibly logical. <laughs> Human beings are not. And you never know what's going on. So, you know, I could say hello to someone tomorrow and say it in the same way that I said hello to someone today and get a completely different response. And it's got nothing to do with the hello I said. It's got a lot to do with what else might be going on because they're a human being and there's all these factors. So I think for me as a leader, I mean, that's the only time when it's like, okay, this is like a tough thing that I'm trying to understand 
where is this person's joy or what's getting in the way of this person or how do we build a system or a culture that allows different types of people to thrive and how do we evolve that because what thriving looked like in 2010 is not what thriving looks like now in 2020 and then in 2022 and post-pandemic you know there's all these things that are happening so I think for me it's not quite negative self-talk it's more where do I solve this like I'm a problem solver so it's like okay cool who do I talk to what do I need to get? What am I preempting? What demo do I need to look at? Is there a technology that can help solve this problem? You know, if we consider it properly. Um, and so that's my thing. I'm always on the, how do we solve this? Or do I need to just give them time? Because sometimes human beings just need time. So that's ended up being my leadership style, but also empowering people in my team to do what they need to do. You know, I can't do everything myself. There's only 24 hours in a day, only seven days in the week, right? And so yeah, sometimes it does need to be trusting your team to do what they need to do, knowing that then I can turn up. And if I've given them the right tools, the right structures, the right support um, and set the right example, then, you know, I've got to trust in my system, trust in my people, trust in the example I've given them and the norms that I've set in the spaces that I operate in, in order for that to kind of work out. And if it doesn't, we go again. <laughs> really iterative, build, measure, learn, build, measure, learn. Yeah, yeah, no, that seems like a really kind of positive perspective to have but um in terms of kind of when you experience sort of failure and adversity in your life are there kind of any moments in time that come into mind and and how did you deal with that when it happened like I mean, how do you deal with that? on a daily basis I make mistakes and there's failures I wouldn't believe anybody who says they've never had a failure or never had to deal with it I mean I heard something a couple of weeks ago that failure is the first step to success and I definitely see it that way I think with that build, measure, learn thing as well, for me, I'm constantly looking for the failures. I'm almost like suspicious, actually, if something happens and things don't go wrong. So I think for me, I'm, I I live in the failures. Like I enjoy that because that's kind of you hit the ground, right? And you know to build back up to know then that you've succeeded. So if something just works and I'm like, did it, did it work? Was it going to work anyway? What is this? Um, so I really enjoy the failures. And whether it's, you know, not putting the right date on a quote, so you end up paying, you know, being paid, you know, last year's rate for something this year whether it's hiring decisions that that we've made that actually really shouldn't have had that person in the team. The week before lockdown was announced in 2020, we had a load of schools in one of the regions that we work with a lot were closing down. And so we kind of saw it coming. So we're like, we're going to run 12 weeks, which is then extended for an extra week. So 13 weeks worth of online activities for this domestic community for free and send laptops out and the rest of it. And um, our very first session with the really young ones, we decided to do origami as part of this math session. And, you know, an hour later, <laughs> with the kids still trying to just fold a square piece of paper now into half eight times, you know, it's like, you know, at this point we're like almost crying laughing on the session because we're like, this has not gone right. You know, and you like, you learn those things. It's like, this was a complete failure. This is a half an hour where they asked the role model loads of questions, but no one has this like little origami thing that we're supposed to have to beautifully show some part of like mathematical geometry. Um, so you have failures all the time. But what do you do? You're like, okay, cool. Maybe next time we do origami, it's for in-person only. <laughs> maybe we don't do that. Or maybe we choose a slightly different one that only involves one fold <laughs> rather than one that has one fold eight times and then another, you know, tucking in. And so that, like, there's always failures. There's always mistakes. You'll always turn up and be like, you know, why didn't I bring it on a USB stick or you know, why don't we not have the address so that we don't have all these people turn up? You know, we, we only give it to people that have onboarded. So life's an iteration. Like you live and you learn. And if you make no mistakes, there's no learning going on. And as we know, like I love learning, right? So I think that's it, like constantly experimenting. And if you frame it as well as an experiment, you're like, I don't know if this is going to sink or swim. 
then when it when it sinks you're like okay cool like let's go again what did we learn again I don't know if this is going to sink or swim if it sinks again you're like okay cool third round let's go again like what's this going to be so that's definitely my approach to failures and there'll be lots of things that go wrong literally on a daily basis like there's always fires to be putting out but I you know as a business leader I think you already know that right you already have that as part and parcel and it's how you manage the failures rather than trying to avoid them wholesale Mm -hmm. yeah definitely and I think it seems as though you don't get too emotionally attached to that failure and kind of just having that mentality of realizing it's a part of the process is really important in sort of not getting too upset about it in the in the first place and kind of just taking it as a notch on your belt for a lesson to be learned exactly there's always a lesson learned I think it's one of those things again um I kind of it, I'm very efficient in my brain so I won't I won't often remember the whole failure I'll remember the lesson learned mm-hmm Mm-hmm. and then that's it and it's like we just don't do that anymore we just put dates on quotes and, and very rarely will it be like yeah there was that one person that happened or there was that origami session I mean the origami session was hilarious <laughs> hilarious for me to remember but now it's like yeah we just don't do the origami on virtual sessions so I think that has to be the approach because otherwise you can't really lead right you'd be upset every day every hour because there's always something going wrong because there is just like a fact of life I don't need to tell you or the listeners that really Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) definitely and um, I think we're coming to uh, sort of the end of the recording and at the end of every podcast we take questions from the audience and this episode our questions are sponsored by some students from Queen Ethelburgers and they have some questions from you so if we just want to take the first question Mm -hmm. hi Dr Emery my name is Hansen and I'm a student in QE. So my question for you is, what do you think is the reason that the science community is not diverse enough? And how can I, as someone not in the field, help to change the phenomenon? Hi, Henson. Um, so great question. Um, two-part question as well, like, like a good two-in-one. Um, I think the reason that the science community is not diverse enough is because science has been seen as a field that's been kind of supported by those in power and used to support those in power. So if we look historically over the years, there's lots of different discoveries that have been made by the science community that actually support whatever's happening in that country of the day. So whether it's phenology that we mentioned earlier or eugenics for a lot of things that have gone on. And so it's meant that actually, you know, having different types of people in that space has kind of not been what the folks in power have necessarily wanted. And so where you have things like elitism, that's been done to help preserve the order and preserve who is there and and is dominating in that space. And we still see that a little bit today in in some kind of corners, in some academic spaces, where there are particular people that have been there for a long time and that no one wants to challenge, but also who feel like there is a particular um, set of characteristics that a true scientist and a top scientist should have and act accordingly um, in their interactions with the people that they have within their departments. So I think that's definitely something that if we go to kind of academic science, obviously industry comes out of that. And so there's a lot of these kind of cultural things that have been inherited. I think it's a really, really great question, actually, part two, which is what can you do, Henson? I think that the greatest thing for you to do is to be an active bystander. So if you're going into this field, even if you're not going into this field, get to learn, get to understand who are the different types of people that can contribute to science and have contributed to science have a listen out, have a look through the different documentaries, different resources. We have the Stemet zine as well that we give out, uh, you know, role models and a lot on our social medias all the time. So get to kind of challenge your own norms and your own assumptions about who does science. And then when you do see these things happening, which you will, I'm sure, see whether you're in science or not, 
get used to calling them out, right? Get used to saying, you know, maybe that joke's not funny. Get used to saying, actually, I'd rather have this person or why don't we tell that story or why don't we uh, value and I want to hear what this person has to say and contribute to this conversation. So that would be my main thing to do. You know, don't be an active bystander. Clue yourself up, get learning. You know, you don't have to read my book, but, you know, there'll be lots of different resources out there for you to learn a little bit about the different types of folks that could be in science and should be contributing and then you have your own sphere of influence. And I, and I think it's definitely something that's good that the age that you are, you're already thinking about this. So by the time you do become that leader, because who knows, why wouldn't you become a leader uh, coming from the space that you're in now? You're able to make those challenges from the top and you're able to affect cultures and change the norms for lots of people that are within your sphere of influence. So that would be my answer to your question, Henson. Great question. Great answer. And our second question for you is from another student. And this is what they ask. Hello, Dr. Anne-Marie. My name is Nishal. I'm a student at Queen Athel Burgers, and I hope you're doing well. Uh, I just wanted to ask you, since you're a child prodigy yourself, that if you take any child uh, between the ages of three to four years old uh, and train them from a very young age, that they can become a child prodigy as well. Um, Great question. Yes. I mean, (laughs) disclaimers, what's it, disclaimers or kind of terms and conditions apply. Um, But yeah, I do genuinely believe every child's a genius. And it might not necessarily be maths or what I did, but there's no reason why it couldn't, especially three and four. Like that's a really young age. Like there's a lot, they're like sponges at that age. Um, but I do believe that actually given the opportunity, lots more folks could be that, have that child prodigy experience. It's something I really firmly believe in. It's partly why we do certifications at the moment at STEMET. So, you know, the, the Agile, the Cyber and the Python that I mentioned earlier are real certifications that people genuinely in industry pay thousands of pounds to be able to, to get, to be able to gain the PCEP, the IC Agile Fundamentals, and uh, with Cyber, Oracle Net Academy Cyber course that folks do. But these are real courses that are done by real people in the industry. And we get groups of teenagers to do them every half term. There's at least 10 that are doing at least one of those qualifications and they pass them and it's no big deal. Um, and we've been doing that for the last couple of years now. So yeah, I mean, why wouldn't we be able to get a three to four year old at some point in their life before 16 to pass a GCSE? Yeah, like that's not, that's not uh, hard. Do you think that in that sense, kids are born kind of with this innate ability or do you think that it can essentially be taught and it's actually, you know, kids are just like sponges essentially? It's a bit of both. I mean, everybody's curious and it just ends up being beaten out of you in different ways, right? Everyone's curious. It's just the curiosity to follow that along. It's not that everyone should do GCSE maths at 10, but there are lots of things that people could do at whatever age that works for them. And that doesn't work for a system because you need everybody to do similar things. Otherwise, you know, supposedly the system would fall apart. It wouldn't, but supposedly it would. But I think, yeah, given the right opportunity, many more folks could have that. I don't think I'm special. I know I'm not special now because we run Stamets and people do it every half term. So I know I'm not special. I was just given the right opportunity at the right time oh. and was in the right mood. <laughs> yeah. It's a curious mood. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, that's very humble of you to kind of have that. No, it's the truth. It's the truth. Genuine. Like, I mean, you know, up until then I didn't have, but now we've literally have had people that have gone through it. You know, one of the girls that wrote back did the Agile course. There's someone, one of the youngest Agile Scrum Masters actually was in the pilot program that we ran. And that's now what she does, does for her career and earns a load of money doing it. So it's not, I genuinely don't think I'm that special. I genuinely don't think I'm special. Like maybe a little bit, maybe like top 50%, but I don't think, I don't think I'm that much lower than that. And there's thousands of young people that we've had that have gone through this. And we don't, I should say, actually, we don't pre-select for STEMETs. Mm-hmm. So you need to be free on that day and able to get to the venue. And even then, most of the time we'll pay for your travel. So that's it. We're not like, oh, you must have 
done a G shit. Like, no, like, do you, are you free this half term? Do you want an agile qualification? Come on then. That's literally it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and that, that kind of like opens up so that, you know, really anyone can get into maths and science and, and really you just have to have that sort of passion for it or just decide whether you like it. Have the free time, come and get some free food and then <laughs> let's we'll, we'll work on the passion bit. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Anne-Marie. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you and to meet you. And um, yeah, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. Uh, would you like to kind of plug to our audience or tell them a bit about your book and, and where they can get it online? Yeah, so She's in Control, available in all good bookshops and booksellers and online um, and in audiobook as well as hardback. Um, and they can also listen to Women Tech Charge, my podcast too, if you're a podcasty kind of person. Thank you.